I'm reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the letter to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet... You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Here ends the reading of the Word of God. Let us pray. Father God, we come before your Holy Word, and we need the power of your Spirit, the power of the one who comes in glory and majesty in order to set our hearts properly on you. Help convict us this morning. Help guide and direct each and every one of us to this diagnosis of the Church of Sardis. Help us to soberly consider what you are saying and also the graciousness and the fact that you are offering a warning to this church. Let those with ears to hear, hear the word this morning and hear your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of people lately find themselves longing for churches of earlier days in our lives. I think one of the difficult realities many of us have been struggling with lately is it doesn't appear like the church culture of yesteryear is entirely going to come back anytime soon. Much in the same manner, I might look at my children as they go through an airport security checkpoint. and I, I tell them, this used to be very different entirely different. You could, you could kind of go into the airport and out of the airport with no restrictions. You could walk your family members easily to the gate. You didn't have to take off your shoes and go into some invasive uh, x-ray scan that who knows what pictures are being taken of your body. It all looks very different. There's a dividing line in American history when that started to happen and, and the time before it. <clears throat> And I I think more of us are having a sense that the American church in 2020 had a dividing line kind of moment. That certain things will no longer be the same after that moment. And why I mention this at the start is, the more I looked at Sardis this week, the more I studied the text this week, the more I began to say, Sardis seemed to resemble 
the broader American evangelical church pre-2020, at least the evangelical church of my lifetime. And because last I checked, I'm preaching at an American evangelical church this morning, I'm just going to warn you off the bat, if you end up seeing these same verses how, like how I ended up seeing them this week, you might not like this sermon by the end of it. And, and, and not necessarily for ways that you, you traditionally may, might not like the sermons uh, preached here or what have you. Because I'm not sure I loved everything this text forced me to look at personally, congregationally, practically speaking, and, and the broader Christian Church of America. There is a lot of opportunity for personal application in this church of Sardis that we can be open up to. The problem of Sardis is a very important warning, especially to the American evangelical churches. And yet there is encouragement in this passage as well. If we have the willingness, God makes clear in his word in this passage, to allow God's spiritual diagnosis to become our treatment plan, God basically promises to congregations that follow the pattern that he desires that you can make the needed reforms if we regroup and we band together. The full power of God, the full power of Christ and His Spirit will be behind you and it will sustain you. And so how did the American church get to the point of 2020 and likely beyond it, which we've even talked about in previous services, how more than one-third of American evangelicals have already decided they're never going to darken the door of a church again? They're permanently gone. I think it's because most American churches have been living for a while like the church of Sardis. And so let's get into the passage and start to figure out what's gone wrong in Sardis. And maybe the broader American church as well. Now, a little bit about Sardis's geography and history. Um, it was a town of about 60 to 100,000 at this time. And you can see from the front cover of your bulletin, it was up against a mountain. Actually, at the top of that mountain, it had a fortress. And so, um, and then farther down the mountain was kind of a secondary city that was added on as the city got bigger. And Sardis prided itself in its defenses. It actually had this steep chasm, almost like the chasm in Mahoopany, for those in Sunday school, uh, a steep chasm that people had to come up in order to attack their little fortress there. And they felt like they were impregnable. Actually, only two commanders in world history uh, had ever gotten into Sardis and, and, and captured the city of Sardis. Even the Romans didn't capture Sardis. They actually got it um, through uh, basically being donated to their empire. And the two people, most people will know the names well. Cyrus of Persia who seven years before he takes down the Babylonian Empire and allows the Jews to go back into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, he was the first to capture Sardis. And how he did that is he sent men, some of his soldiers, a small group, up this chasm during the cover of darkness, during the cover of night, like a thief in the night, in order to open up the city for conquering. And he was successful. He was the first one who was successful. The second individual who was successful was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. 
because he was a great historian of history, and, and he knew and he learned from previous patterns of war, and he goes, that seemed to work out for Persia. Let's do the same thing. He followed the same pattern, and under the cover of darkness, under the cover of night, he destroyed the city. And so the letter to Sardis is a warning of the comfortable church, of the church that feels like we'll just continue to carry on as is. We have stability. We have patterns. We have uh, traditions that kind of help hold us up and sustain us. And yet as darkness fell, historically in Sardis, it crumbled. And as darkness had been falling upon him uh, on this church community as Jesus diagnoses, their faith was crumbling. That's why I saw some similarities with the American church that was so secure. And yet, now here two years afterwards, seems a lot less secure when darkness fell. And so what does Jesus tell this church? First, he greets this church with the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. We often hear that word seven, and immediately, um, if you're comfortable and kind of familiar with Scripture, you say, okay, so seven's everything, wholeness, completeness. But also, it's worth mentioning that there are two times in Scripture. One is in the Old Testament with the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2, and also in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, that aspects of the Holy Spirit are talked about, things that it's... It focuses on and emphasizes in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in both accounts, seven things are listed. And so why I mention that is, because John is the scribe here, I think it's not just seven's a whole number of completion, but basically Jesus is saying, the fullness of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is in at my disposal. It's... You, you, if you look to me as your Lord and King, understand I have the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit behind you. And also when Jesus is saying, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Not exactly a hallmark greeting from Jesus. To Sardis, Jesus is making clear, well, I know you have others fooled, that you're seeking me in the things you do. I know you're not doing things through the power of the Holy Spirit because I control the power of the Holy Spirit. I, the one God in three, we are a perfect trinity. We know each other's ministries. I am the Lord your God who knows your deepest motives from what or whom you try to draw power from. And Sardis is trying to do works in their own strength. And so basically Jesus says, this church, this church is a dead church. And while people have looked at you and said things like, wow, they're doing things right at Sardis. They have a lot of activity, a lot of things going on. That's a successful church. Nothing seems to ever slow them down. Jesus says, I know people believe this about you, that your church is brimming with life, but you're dead. You don't fool me. While you appear to be an in, un, a fortress that cannot be penetrated, a, a type of church that will just always stand with no weak spot or cause of serious complaint, that will just go on unchallenged, 
I know your hidden godless patterns of appearing to be a church that's alive, and yet you're not alive. And this first verse should actually be appreciated as encouraging. I submit that to you. How so? How so? Because the life giver, the one with the full power of judgment, the one with the full power of life over death, comes with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and he is ready and willing to assist them in changing their ways. You know, I've heard this, and I'm sure you've heard it as well in the last couple years. Oh, we need another great awakening here in America. Yeah, that sounds nice. However, Jesus is going to make clear to Sardis, well, that sounds like a wonderful idea. You're going to have to change your ways first by being obedient to my commands, by relying upon my life-giving spirit. And there will be no third great awakening in America if we don't similarly rely on the same kinds of things. And it won't be our, the Lord, our Savior, to blame. It will only be us. The American church needs to change patterns and habits that brought us to this place we now find ourselves in. We need another Reformation kind of moment centered around the Word of God. Jesus could have just judged Sardis, but said He's coming to them, letting them know the honest truth. I know all the works motivated by the Holy Spirit and all the counterfeit works. People pretend, he says, to be motivated for me, but you are not motivated by me. You, Sardis, are in the latter category. You have others fooled, but you don't have me fooled. I know what is true, God-given life. I know what it looks like, and this isn't it. And then in verse 2, we have a note of pleading from Jesus. I don't, I don't know how he said it. It could have been, you know, the booming kind of Lazarus style, wake up. Or it could have maybe even been that pleading, wake up. Please, wake up. Wake up, it says, from your being dead and strengthens, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Basically, this congregation is at a crossroads. Some of it God looks at and he says, it's already too far gone. It's not going to follow me. It's, it's never going to be motivated by the Spirit of Christ, but strengthen what remains before it devolves into something else, which is a little bit like those classic battle scenes that we see in, in films where the epic armies are of, of evil are coming against the walls of, of the fortress of the city. I, I picture almost uh, Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The forces of evil have breached the walls. And there needs to be a regrouping and a new coming together in a new area where a new boundary can be set in order to defend once more what is true, what is good, what is through the power of the Spirit. It's the kind of classic idea, fall back, regroup, come back together, begin to fight and live by my power that Jesus is referring, referring to here. You know, my wife and I, we went to breakfast, and I'm going to mention you by name, Joe and Lois, on Friday. And she goes after the breakfast, got in the car. Oh, those are two terrible people. No, I'm kidding. I just wanted to. <laughs> um, awful people. No, no. That's not, that's not right. All right. No, she actually said this. She said, it's so incredible how... In the last really year and a half, God has 
brought people together from different communities. And, 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 and this doesn't mean all of you are, maybe you're just passing through here. I mean, I think there's like eight different churches represented that have joined us here and, and kind of found this little respite off the beaten path where like church planters have told this church, you need to go on the main road because nobody will ever figure out you're here. Um, and he found a little place to regroup. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that, however long that exists. And it's been such a blessing to us as a congregation to see that take place. And that's really what my wife was pointing out, what a blessing it is to have this kind of aspect. And that's kind of a, an idea that Christ has here for Sardis. Regroup. Regroup. Reevaluate priorities and focus. The church has largely been asleep, not focused on Christ, not on the life-giving power of His Spirit. And I'm, I'm speaking of the Church of America. Relying on worldly methods of, of growth and, and entertainments to help protect it. And now is the time for us to wake up. Wake up, please wake up. Strengthen the good things. To build, hopefully, faithful churches all across the land that have reformed, regrouped, before we lose the entire church. And what is it, then, that makes a healthy church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Actually, I just ordered some new folders for welcome packets for visitors. And I was kind of pouring over Scripture, and I was thinking, what passage of Scripture should be on the front of the folder? And I rested on Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I actually prefer the NIV's translation of it because... But this is when the New Testament church is first established after Pentecost. This is the first community. And it says in that verse, there are four things, four core principles that early church focused on. And the words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. That means those should be also our core principles going forward. And they're this. The first one is the teaching of the apostles. Well, what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching from the scriptures. So the teaching of the scriptures. That's the first thing. The next thing is the fellowship. Fellowship both in, I, I hate this expression, but doing life with one another. But also in the Greek there for that word fellowship, it's also this idea of seeking the common good of those around us. That's another form of fellowship. The next thing is breaking bread with one another. So, for instance, we've tried to start implementing people partaking in a meal downstairs with one another. But also, communion is a form of breaking bread with one another. And then the last thing is prayer. Prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Those are the four things. Teaching from the Word of God. Fellowship. Care for fellow man. Breaking bread with one another and prayer. Actually, the early church used that fourfold practice to decide how it would order its worship service. Which is why, if you, a hobby horse of people like myself or Adam Diefenbach, uh, might say, huh, should we break bread in communion every week? Um, but that's for another sermon. Another sermon. I, I think ultimately, though, 
That has to be our core. That has to be our central. That has to be the desire of those, that fourfold kind of principle that we rally around. That this becomes the bedrock of our stand against the world. That these things are the most essential things. But what things might become non-negotiable things? Hopefully we dare to look at those four things and say, that is the very core of our services, the very heart of the church. Yet I don't think it's a coincidence that the broader American evangelical church, once it became more interested in programs or specific political parties or TED Talk, TED Talk-like sermons, that are not really grounded in the text. You, you rarely will hear directly about Jesus, but more chicken soup for the soul, pithyisms, mankind-centered messages, that that church found itself woefully unprepared for the season we now find ourselves in, where over one-third have said, it is pointless to continue going back to church. I'll never go back again. Because what was our center? What were our core things? What were our core values? Probably a little bit more like Sardis than we want to admit. You know, the Bible makes clear we're all ruled by a king. His name is Jesus. And how are you going to be a good subject of that king? You need to know what he's telling you in his word. You need to have fellowship with him. You need to... Partake in breaking bread and communion where it's this intimate reality to the goodness of Christ. And you need to be in prayer with him. Jesus doesn't like to bless things that aren't focused on him. And it's an inconvenient truth to share, but it's true. But what is a temptation for churches like ours? It's to make the activities. It's to make the fundraisers. It's to make the traditions more important than the word than the fellowship, than the sacraments, than praying together. I don't need anyone to answer these questions aloud. I just want you to ask these questions and answer them in your head. But let me ask a series of questions. Is it easier to get both our church members and other individuals out to the oyster picnic or to a Sunday service? Is it easier to get church members to buy either foshnots or potato filling Or to come out to a prayer service? Do we post more signs in the community about our activities? Or are there more moments of us breaking bread and sharing communion with one another? Now don't get me wrong. I am not saying the following. I'm not saying that we should do away with our fundraisers. We bless ministries and mission work all throughout this region through our fundraisers. They are good things. I don't want that calendar to change in terms of doing away with these things. That's not the point. The point is priority. The point is, when you cut us, what do we believe? What What do we believe? What is at our core? And the core has to be the things that Jesus asks the churches to have at its very core. As others pointed, as Jesus pointed out, others believed Sardis was a great church. I'm sure they had an amazing calendar. And yet he says they were dead. They needed to wake up, to regroup, to strengthen what was still alive. 
done hospital visits before. And in the hospital visits, you know, usually I try to wear the old Goshenopin shirt that I have. Bobby, remind me, I got to send the logo so Bruce can get that. But, you know, it's sad. It's, it's, and this isn't our fault. But when they see that name, they often say, oh, you're the pastor of the Oyster Picnic Church. And I've had, like, nurses, doctors on hospital visits say this to me. Because, you know, that's, that's what the world's concerned with. But I wait for the day where I'm wearing that shirt into the hospital and go, oh, I know you're a community of prayer. Will you pray with me? I know you're a community centered around the word. I, I just want to encourage you, you're doing the right kind of thing. That's, that should be at our core, our core ethos, our core value. This should be the core for this church or any church, teaching the word, the fellowship shared, and sharing love with one another, breaking bread to one another, and prayer. And then in verse 3, Jesus continues, saying, Remember what you received and heard. Basically, keep his word and repent, he says. If you've had the wrong kinds of things that you require, okay, that's why I've come to you. Regroup in repentance. Make yourself have the right kind of priorities. Then he says, but if you will not wake up, and we talked about this verse downstairs, if you will not wake up, Sunday school, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And this is used at other times in the New Testament, like in Matthew chapter 24, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or 2 Peter chapter 3. And in those times, it, it seems to more emphasize Jesus' second coming. But as Bruce pointed out downstairs uh, during Sunday school, there is an aspect where we don't know the hour of our death. We don't know the moment of when Jesus comes back for us and we go to him. And so, yes, he's, and remember, he's also speaking presently to a church in Sardis who twice they have been conquered in the darkness of night, being ill-prepared for the army that was upon them. And Jesus is saying, I will become your enemy if your church continues to refuse reforming center upon me. We need to stop fooling around. We need to be awakened. We need to hold tightly to the Savior, who at one point in time captivated the people of Sardis. I mean, think about this. If I'm on the opinion this was written before 70 AD. This could be as little as 40 years. They have apostles still writing to them, and yet they have surrendered the glorious gospel. The Apostle John is still alive and still they've gone astray. They've forgotten. And frankly, the average American evangelical church and even in our individual lives, I think we can admit this morning we are prone to losing our way, prone prone to being consumed and allowing ourselves to be consumed with lesser things. But now is the time, because we don't know when the thief will come in the night, to begin to take seriously the basic essentials of the faith that our Lord and King is here. A church is dying in Sardis. And our Savior is pleading, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't leave me. Don't lose focus upon me. And if you have the courage to listen, 
He might be saying the same thing to us as well. One of the primary buzzwords of the last two years is essential and non-essential services. And what's supposed to be essential? The category of churches like Sardis and churches like ours. The Word of God, fellowship, generosity, having generosity with others, the sacraments of God, and praying with and for one another. And what's in the non-essential category? A lot of things that, if we're not careful, creep their way in. You know, this is a Reformed church, and I'm asked all the time, what does that mean to be a Reformed church? And I usually give a longer historical definition, but I'm going to try to summarize it. Some brief. The Reformed tradition is this. 500 years ago, we come from a people who saw tradition get out of control, get totally out of line, no longer centered upon Christ and His saving gospel and the power of His Spirit. They were openly buying and trying to buy and sell salvation. And the Reformed tradition had the courage to say, we need to give up certain traditions so that we can be better centered upon the person of Christ. What does it mean to come into a Reformed church? It means we are inheritors of a tradition that had the courage to say to certain traditions, they have no place in being here because they're not centered upon the person and work of Christ. That is our inheritance as people who are Reformed. And that is what costs the lives of some of the forefathers of the Reformed faith. French Huguenots in one day in Paris might have been as high as, one weekend basically, as high as 70,000 Reformed individuals cut down in the city of Paris for just having the courage to say, we need to reform from these traditions that are not centered upon Christ. So, it's for us all. What do you tend to find the most important things we have to keep alive here at Old Goshenhoffen? Is it the preaching of the Word? Is it a fellowship of both living life connected to the church family? but also finding ways to extend blessings to those beyond it. Do you think having more regular communion at Old Gosh and Hoppen or being a part of post-worship fellowship meals, do you think that might be something that God could bless for us? Do you find attending the prayer meetings more important than, for instance, fundraisers and activities? Where are our priorities as a church? Again, I'm not saying we need to change our calendar, but we need to clearly know what are our most important priorities, what the core needs to be for this church. Now in the final three verses, verses five, four, five, and six, we learn some individuals had not soiled themselves in their robes of white. And actually, there's a little bit of a reference here to Daniel chapter 11 and 12. And basically, people who were willing to stand up for what's right, and they were persecuted for it. And so Jesus delights in that. He's encouraged by that, and he's trying to encourage others to live like that. And, and really, those verses, to boil it down quickly, because I know I spent a long time on the first three, if you prioritize the world, the world will love you. And yet Christ will plead with your lifeless body, as he does here in this passage to Sardis. But if you prioritize Christ, the world will criticize you. But Christ will love you. And he will bring life to your once dead body. 
through the power of His Spirit. So choose life in Him. Make Him your ultimate priority, your ultimate hope, your ultimate confidence. And for the one who conquers through prioritizing Christ, even if persecution will follow to that individual, Christ makes clear He will never blot their name out of the book of life. Now this verse echoes something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Basically, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. But if you keep my name, I will know your name before the Father. That was a paraphrase. But there's also another reality here. A lot of times people like to dive too deep into the book of life thing. There was a simple practice in cities in the ancient world, in the Roman world. They have a list. And it listed all the names of everybody who's welcome in the city. It was a great way to keep crime down. And if you committed a crime, if you showed that you weren't truly of the city, it would blot your name out. And to get kicked out of a city at that time of, uh, in, in history could be a death sentence. Because you're not on the city next door's role either. You don't have your name there. And so Jesus' point here is, I have my own city. And in my city, I keep the names of the faithful. And there are other names blotted out, put in a different book. A book for criminals and outcasts. And you will find no peace outside my city. Jesus has a membership book. And it's much more important than the membership book of American churches. And just being busy in a church will not make you a part of his membership book. And the fact is, when Jesus begins to talk like this, often we as Christians can begin to think, The Bible is hard when it speaks this way, when Jesus talks this way. And yet, let us not forget whose word this is. Coming to Sardis. This is the God who came down from heaven in order to be treated like a criminal and an outcast. Even his own people did not receive him. The ruling power when he was an infant so hated the very idea of him that his family was forced to go into exile to Egypt of all places. And when he finally returned and he settled into the city of Nazareth, upon preaching his first sermon in that city, the people there, they wanted to kill him. Jesus knows what it's like to be kicked out of nations, kicked out of cities, and abandoned by your friends. But Jesus also came down from heaven in order that we might be, go to be, be able to go with, to be with him in that great getting up morning to come, that newborn cry. And in his heavenly city we will enjoy the reality that even though we fall down into death, we wake up in His kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, please, let us wake up. Let us strengthen the faith that is still alive in us. Let us not pass into death, forsaking the King and His heavenly city to come. He who has ears to hear, please hear the warning for us this morning, but also hear of the grace and mercy He offers us now to rededicate ourselves, to reform ourselves and our lives to be better centered around Him and upon Him. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we confess that sometimes we think too lightly of Your Son. Here, less than 40 years from His death on a cross, He already had to come and warn a church Stay focused on me. Stay alive. Regroup. Reorient yourselves to me. And Lord, if we are honest, 
we know that that often happens to us as we leave these doors. Strengthen what is still alive in us. Cast out that, it, what, that which is dead. Help us to be more faithful citizens of your heavenly city. Help us to be most concerned about the glorious city to come rather than the approval of the world. Help us to have the courage to reform ourselves, to be centered at the core of all things upon you and what you tell us is good for us as your faithful servants. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you.